Welcome to the Horror Babble Originals podcast. You're listening to Hammer and Nails. This is episode five. Van Melsen takes his medicine. Mr. Van Melson? Why, thank you. I'll hold on to mine, thanks, Nance. Whenever you're ready, Diane. Okie dokie. Hello, you are listening to The Woodrow Show. This is your host, Diane Woodrow. Our conversation with renowned PI Peter Van Melson continues today as he recounts his experiences investigating the Hamilton Horror. The tragic tale of a group of misguided youths and a strange house on the Yorkshire coast. I'm talking with Mr Van Melson in the foyer of his refuge of choice, Rosedale Chapel, here in the Howardian Hills of North Yorkshire. As you can no doubt hear, a rather aggressive storm has taken us by surprise this afternoon, a poignant reminder of the unpredictability of day-to-day life. Peter... Tell us about your second encounter with the figurehead of the group, Patrick Jones. Well, Diane, it was time to see for myself what the boys had seen, to journey the way they had journeyed. And to do that, a particular frame of mind was required, a frame of mind induced by the foul-smelling tablets I'd found by the body of Grant Smith, the Jimson-weed-infused punk, to be honest. I wasn't too keen on the idea, but it wasn't to be the first time something other than blood had flowed through my veins. I didn't mess about, Diane. The day after my return from Fosbridge, with Halloween fast approaching, I found myself at Jones's door, eager to press him on the subject of his guided journeys, or walks, as he called them. Jones was home alone, which was fortuitous, given the nature of my visit. A lengthy conversation with Mrs. Jones on the matter would have been highly inconvenient. The clock was ticking, and my patience was waning. Listen, the storm's moving off. (laughs) Marvellous. Unsettled by the storm, Peter. Oh, it isn't the storm that has me unsettled, Diane. It's what comes with it. Meaning? In this case, nothing, thank heavens. But there's always the next time. Strange things move with storms, Diane. Hide in the clouds, mutter amongst the thunderclaps. But I digress. Jones escorted me to his bedroom, or den, being a more appropriate term for that place, and there we sat, discussing the nature of my visit. Initially, I sensed that Jones was excited by the idea of walking me through that other world of his, but latterly, as the full extent of my intentions were revealed, involving a dangerous entity of indeterminate origin, the lad's enthusiasm waned somewhat. He grew fearful, in fact, when I 
explain the nature of the creature that haunted him, the thing that took the form of the laughing man, of how it came to be, thanks to the boy's experiments with punk. Regardless, I produced the small tin I'd found at Sutton Bank, and opened it, whilst reaffirming my intentions. I tell you, Diane, the smell of those awful pills had intensified royally. It was positively repellent. <laughs> but needs must when the devil drives, and I knew what had to be done. Well, Patrick proceeded to explain his process to me, one I wasn't completely unfamiliar with, owing to the wonderfully informative pages of Fisher's Dreams and Visions. According to Patrick, the pauper of the punk sits back in a comfortable position, while the guide, in this case Jones, gently induces a state of deep relaxation. And so I swallowed one of those fetid tablets, sat back, and listened to the sound of the lad's voice. I have to admit, he had a natural aptitude for it. I was rather surprised, given his youthfulness and general lack of experience. Had you been hypnotized before? Once, Diane. An attempt at past-life regression. But, as I was told at the time, I'm, I'm not particularly receptive to suggestion, and so hadn't placed much stock in the process. This time, however, aided by the punk, that horrible Jimson-weed pill that even then was repeating on me, my suggestibility was intensified, resulting in a heightened sense of awareness. All at once I felt completely detached from my physical self, a state entirely dissimilar to that which one experiences when falling asleep. It was though I was standing at the bottom of a deep, dark pit, looking out into impenetrable darkness, completely disembodied. And then, surrounding me in the void, came the familiar sound of Patrick's dulcet tones. Okay, Mr. Van Nelson, where are you? he asked. And as the question filtered through to my brain, I no longer saw the blackness, but instead found myself enclosed by dense woodland. I'm in the woods, I answered, feeling sure that that was where I was supposed to be. It was an incredibly visceral experience, Diane. I felt the cool of the air about me, and the scent of pine wood was strong in my nostrils. And, curiously, I was aware of my body again. Ahead of you, there's a gravel track. Follow it. And there it was, a gravel track, winding through the trees in the direction of who knows what. I did as the boy instructed, and followed it, only too aware of the sound of gravel beneath my shoes. Cautiously, I edged forward along the track, taking in my surroundings. Before long, Patrick's voice sounded again. There's a house at the end of the track. Do you see it? I see it, I told the boy. And see it I did, there in the shadow of a hundred trees, hidden from the world by clutching canopies. But it wasn't nightmarish, Diane. Merely an old house, a victim of dilapidation and years of neglect. I'm approaching the door, I said. Be careful in there, Mr. Van Nelson. If he sees your face, he'll come after you. Who'll come after me? I asked. The laughing man. We'll see about that, I added, 
and there in the depths of the illusion I pushed open the tarnished door. You see, this had been my objective all along, Diane. In order to be drawn to it in the waking world, I had to explore it in the illusory world, absorb the feel of the place, learn its vibrations. How so? Well, we each of us possess a sort of internal compass, a sense of direction that, when coupled with the notion of a specific target, allows us to move towards it, heedless of practical limitations. Of course, few individuals are aware of this sense, but it's there, Diane, a sort of sixth sense, if you will. I'm not sure I follow, Peter. Let me give you an example. Have you ever been to Bristol? Yes. Point to it. Sorry? Point to it. The general direction, I mean. Oh, uh, well... Southwest, very good. Okay. Now then, have you ever been to Venice? No. Ah. Do you know roughly in which direction it lies? Uh, southeast, I would imagine. Okay, point to it. Hardly a challenge, wouldn't you say? I suppose so. The point I'm making, Diane, is that one must have a vague sense of a place's location, a rough idea of where it lies geographically in order to be able to move towards it. Visiting the house in the illusory world was a means by which to get a feel for where the real house might be located in the waking world. I see. But you have to admit, Peter, your instincts for such things are much more refined than the average person's. Experience, Diane. We're all born with the same potential. Hmm. If we could return to Jones a moment, why would he warn you about the Laughing Man? Well, the Laughing Man, the ghost of James Barker, had become Patrick's personal demon, a symptom of both his guilt following Barker's passing and the hallucination-inducing bite of a questing Wandermoth. In his mind, the only thing I would possibly encounter in that house was that which Barker had encountered, the original Laughing Man, the man with the cane. In reality, of course, he had no way of knowing what I would or wouldn't see in there. We each have our own demons, a notion that contributed to my salvation in the end. Imagine it, Diane. My lowly form on the threshold of the sorcerer's lair, deep in the illusory world, ready to enter within. Hello? Ah. Uh, hello? Is there anybody here? Where are you hiding? You can't hide indefinitely. I'm coming for you. Show yourself. Get out. What in the name? Do not come back. What was it, Peter? A vision? A glimpse, Diane. A confirmation that I was on the right track. And as I arose from that strange phantasmagoria, staring Patrick Jones in the face, the compass in my mind snapped sharply in the direction of Robin's Cove. Magnetically compelled I was, to the hidden Blackwood Manor, beyond a grove of trees, some five miles due north of Fossbridge. 
Could there be an element of remote viewing involved here, Peter? Well, Diane, I imagine the originators of remote viewing were indeed working towards the same end, that of glimpsing the distant and the unseen. But in this case, there was a much greater degree of specificity required, a keener degree of focus. The method in this case, the guided journey, or walk, as it were, in conjunction with punk, as conducted by Patrick Jones, had its origin elsewhere. And though I had my suspicions that Patrick's researches had led him in the direction of certain rare books, including a certain volume of a certain Middle Eastern flavour, I never did behold evidence of such. I imagine that even now the lad has a number of dusty tomes secreted away somewhere. You've hinted at this already, but do you have any real idea as to where he might have acquired such books? Well, I discussed the matter with the estimable Norman Kane, who, as you know by now, is incredibly knowledgeable with regards to rare and forbidden literature. And it was from him that I learned that there are very few dealers in North Yorkshire, from whom a young and inquiring individual the likes of Patrick Jones could have purchased or borrowed such a book. So yes, Diane, I have an idea. Would you care to share those ideas? But of course, that's a discussion for another time. Understood. But I noticed you used the word forbidden in describing these books. Can you expand on that? Certainly. In my line of work, Diane, we investigators regularly come across information that is generally regarded as bunk, or pseudoscientific, to use a phrase I find particularly abhorrent. But if one has an open mind, it's the duty of he or she to study these, shall we say, nuggets of information with great minuteness. And in doing so, Diane, the rabbit hole expands and from out of that great abyss springs wisdom. For example, the back roads of literature are often filled with forgotten and forbidden tomes, works by authors long dead, individuals persecuted throughout the ages, men and women who saw fit to chronicle their extraordinary discoveries. Amongst certain circles, writers and investigators such as Abdul al-Hazred, Ludwig Prynne and Thomas Karnacki are often cited as being responsible for perpetuating certain abominable secrets. But it's my personal belief that these individuals preserve the knowledge they acquired in order to warn future generations of the things that dwell in the shadows. Nameless things, waiting to return to the light. But again, Diane, these are matters for another occasion, and not strictly related to the matter at hand involving the sprawling Blackwood estate. Then please continue, Peter. I thanked the young would-be sorcerer, Patrick Jones, for his assistance, and, refusing to relate the remainder of my experience in the illusory world with him, despite his insistence I do so, I departed Hamerton and headed home, in order to meditate in the peace and quiet of my library. And there, once again, I remained for several days, drinking coffee, smoking, contemplating. This thing, whatever it was, had attempted to ward me off on three occasions, appearing to me on the streets of Manchester, 
speaking to me in the guise of Mrs. O'Brien in Fosbridge, and psychically hurling me off its property during my punk-induced guided journey. But I felt that its threats were merely a form of posturing, an attempt to pass itself off as something formidable and willful, a ruse, if you will. But I've said it before, Diane. Peter Van Melsen is no pushover. <laughs> I had my suspicions from the very outset that our would-be vampire was frail of body, strong of mind, and that these attempts to dissuade me were indeed very powerful illusions. So I opted for a damage-limitation approach, and, taking the decision to keep my plans to myself, I made arrangements to return once more to Fosbridge, to approach the Blackwood estate from a distance. The last thing I needed was a pledge of backup from DCI Brent, or even the notion of companionship from my good friend Norman Kane. No, I felt that it was imperative that I confront this mysterious figure alone, and on my own terms. And so, on November 2nd, that fateful day, I arranged for a private car hire firm to escort me directly to Fosbridge. On the journey— Seated quite comfortably in the back of an anonymous-looking minivan, I studied a rare tome from my own collection, Bold Evocations, by the aforementioned Thomas Carnacki, a paranormal investigator of incredible esoteric wisdom, responsible for the penning of several grimoires throughout the early twentieth century. It was my firm belief, Diane, that a physical assault on this thing would be futile, a psychical one, however, might prove to be rather effective. As I touched upon before, I felt that our would-be vampire might be susceptible to its own personal demons, if I could but find a method through which to manifest them. I considered that Karnacki's book, coupled with what remained of the punk recovered from Sutton Bank, might just prove to be a winning combination— and what a journey that was, Diane. The sky was absolutely clear, serene even. The A169 was quiet, and the driver, thankfully, was mindful of my need for privacy, and left me to my quiet studies. We passed the whole of Horkham, and crested the barren tops, my heart filled with a fervent trepidation known only to men and women in the business of supernatural research. So nervous was I, in fact, that as the North Sea appeared on the horizon, and the minivan plunged into the sleepy town of Slates, it was I who broke the silence. Do you know the area well? As well as the next man, sir. Been to Fosbridge before? Once or twice. Recently? Can't say I have, sir. It's deserted these days. Fell into ruin, following... Following what? A visit from something. Evil. Evil, sir? Something that doesn't belong. Can I ask you a question? Certainly. If you were given the power of God, what would you do about the devil? Oh, I'd do away with him, sir. Amen to that. If you were given the power of God? A metaphor, Diane. Karnacki, in his book, states that, and I quote, to evoke is to create, 
To revoke is to forsake. What does it mean? I believe that he was merely saying that evocation, invocation, whatever the term employed, is as creation is to God. Thus, evoke and revoke responsibly. The thought was rather humbling, as I considered it, in the back of that lumbering minivan. Served to settle my nerves somewhat, as did the earnest, if understated remarks of the driver. Well, we arrived in Fosbridge a little after two p.m. I bade farewell to my escort, and absorbed the cool, desolate atmosphere of the empty thoroughfares. The compass in my mind was highly attuned, Diane, and before long I found myself standing by the derelict property of Mrs. Ferguson, the elderly lady who had answered the call of her dead husband all those years ago, prior to walking out into the bleak and frigid winter night. Standing there, looking due north, I felt the pull of the Blackwood estate, and, squinting, could just about make out a dark patch of forest crowning the top of a coastal summit, and within that shaded woodland, well, that's what the subsequent hike was about to reveal. Thanks, Peter. Yes. I think that'll have to be it for episode five. Not a problem, Diane. I'll just record the outro, Andy. Of course. That's all we have time for today, folks. Once again, you've been listening to The Woodrow Show, with me, your host, Diane Woodrow. Today's guest has been the renowned paranormal investigator, Peter Van Melsen. Our conversation regarding the Hamilton horror will continue next Thursday at 8pm. In the meantime, be sure to share your thoughts in the comments section. Until next time. Got it, Diane. Super. Let's take five. And I wouldn't mind getting another cup of tea if I could try. You have been listening to Hammer and Nails, a Horror Babble original podcast. This episode was recorded and produced by Ian and Jennifer Gordon, starring Ian Gordon as Peter Van Melsen, Jennifer Gordon as Diane Woodrow, Max Rudd as Andy Perkins, Jess Gordon as Nancy Peterson, Ben Gordon as as Patrick Jones, Paul Draper as Taxi Driver, and Simon Stanhope as, well, no spoilers today, folks. Story and ambient music by Ian Gordon. Artwork by Duncan Kay. Title music, Van Melsen's Theme by David Jeffries. Special thanks to Patrick McCone, producer. Copyright 2022 by Horror Babble.